0: the poor, the depressed, orphans, the sick, the hurting, I think there's general consensus that, you know, people like that would benefit from what Christianity has to offer. The question is, what about all the other people out there? What about the people who don't have those kinds of obvious, you know, glaring issues and problems? What about people who from all outward appearances are just fine? What about decent people? What about what we, you know, refer to generally as good people? What about religious people? Because I believe that the gospel is obviously for the broken and hurting people in the world. But what's often overlooked is the fact that good people need the gospel too. That even religious people need the gospel too. And in our study today, we're going to see two men here in Acts chapter 10. One is a very good man. And the other one is a very religious man, and we're going to see how the gospel came into their lives, and both of them desperately needed it, and it changed both of them and transformed them. We're going to see how a religious person was changed as the gospel challenged the areas of his thinking that he had held for a very long time. The title of today's message is, A Religious Man's Conversion. And here's what we're going to see for you who like outlines, you note takers. Here's our outline. First, we're going to see a good person. The next thing we're going to see is pigs in a blanket. And thirdly, we're going to see breaking tradition to follow Jesus. So a good person, pigs in a blanket, and breaking tradition to follow Jesus. Let's begin in verse 1 as we look at a good person. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion of what is known as the Italian Cohort a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continuously to God. So in the Roman army, there was a, you know, different divisions, right? You had a legion, which was, uh, you know, a very large amount of people. And legions were broken into cohorts. And a cohort was 600 soldiers. And cohorts were divided into six groups of 100. And each group of 100 was overseen by a centurion. You see the root word there of centurion being 100. And so a uh, centurion was a leader over a group of a hundred men, and generally centurions were considered to be kind of your, your blue-collar, but yet noble people of the Roman army, right? They were brave of heart, they were sound of mind, and they were strong in discipline. Interestingly, every time a centurion is mentioned in the New Testament, they're always spoken of favorably, That's surprising because, you know, the people of that day, the Jews of that day really did not like that their country was being occupied by Rome. But yet they had great respect for centurions in general. Jesus himself interacted with centurions on several occasions, and each occasion we see a centurion in the Gospels. They're always portrayed as upstanding, sincere, all around just good people. They had great respect for Jesus, even if they were not disciples of Jesus. And here once again, we're going to see a Roman centurion who is a, a good person. And here's what we know about this man Cornelius. Three things I want to point out to you. First of all, he was a religious man, but he was religious in his own way. So he was religious, but in his own way. We read that Cornelius feared God and he often prayed. But here's the thing. He was not a convert to Judaism. He was not a Jew. But yet he had great respect for the God of the Israelites, right? He wasn't a pagan. He had had come from that, probably grown up with it, but yet... He had seen the vanity of it, he had seen the fallacy, the indulgent idolatry of the Greek uh, and Roman pagan gods and the whole system, and he had rejected that. And instead, he had chosen to recognize that there was a God in heaven who created us and who rules over all of the world and over all of our lives. So Cornelius, he had this great respect for God, he tried to live in an upright way, he said his prayers, he was a religious man, but yet, and I think this is like many people today, and I in our society, he was a man who was religious, but in his own way. Maybe you know people like this. I certainly do. I mean, a lot of the people I meet, my neighbors, people I meet in the city, this is so common. Right, people who believe in God and they pray, but they don't really go to church. They're not really committed to Christianity or, or any other faith for that matter. They've kind of created their own form of spirituality by taking you know, pieces from different religious traditions and you know, whatever resonates with them, they kind of put it together and, and that's their view of spirituality. I would say that this describes many, if not most of the people who live in this area of Colorado. If you look at the statistics What you'll find is that relatively, you know, relative to the population, relatively few people in this area go to church. Yet, at the same time, statistics say that the majority of people believe in God. So, here's what we have. We have people just like Cornelius. Very popular nowadays to be like this. To have your own way of believing. To pray, to have respect for God, but yet not be fully committed to Christianity per se. So the second thing, so first thing was he was religious but in his own way. The second thing about Cornelius, he was a family man. He was an engaged husband and dad. We read that he spent time teaching his kids right and wrong. So he was a good man, you know, like a good dad, he was involved. The third thing we see about him was that he was a doer of good deeds. Cornelius, we read, he gave generally, or generously to the poor and to those in need. He had a big heart. He wasn't a stingy person. He used his money to do good and to help other people. Now when I read about Cornelius, like I said, I cannot help but think, wow, this is so much like many of the people I meet here around Longmont. Good people with strong morals, people who love their families, and who even if they don't go to church, they believe in God in some way or another, and they are generous and they like to do good things and help other people. Now, I sometimes think that Christian Christians, you know, if we get too insular, right, you can tend to have this perception that, you know, people who are not Christians, they're all just terrible people who have fangs and they're selfish and mean and they cheat at professional football and they hate babies and they kick puppies and they make other people cry and they just hate everything that's good and beautiful in the world. And the fact is, that's simply not the case. There are a lot of people out there who are not Christians, but they are very nice, moral people. And these kinds of people, like Cornelius, have always been kind of a conundrum in regard to Christianity, right? People people are like, where where do we put these people? I don't have a category, because I've only got two categories, super good and super bad. Where do I put these people who are good, but yet they don't follow Jesus, right? Right? You know, because it's kind of easy to understand that Hitler is a sinner, right? And that bad people need to repent and get right with God, and Hitler's like one of those people. And a place like hell should exist for people like Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot and the the murderers and bad guys of the world. That's fine. But where people tend to have a hard time is with people like Cornelius, right? Decent people with good morals who love their families and they're kind and generous to others. And people ask, well, how can you say that people like that need to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus? Surely God wouldn't send somebody like that to hell. That just doesn't seem fair. He's such a good person. She believes in God, right? I mean, like, what's the deal? Isn't that enough? Now, maybe you have a family member or a friend from work or, or a neighbor or someone you know, and, and this is them. They're not a Christian, but they're just genuinely a great person. They help other people. They donate money to worthy causes. They're always looking to help others, But and they've got their own kind of spirituality. They believe in God, and they're they're all around good people, maybe even better than many of the Christians you've met. I mean, you know, I've met some pretty shady Christians. How can you say that those Christians are saved and these good people I know are not? Now, there are those who would say something like this, like, you know, even though those people don't believe in Jesus, as long as they, you know, believe in God, they love God and they do good to their fellow man, then they should be okay. But what's interesting here in this story, and this is what I really want you to see, is that with Cornelius, that's him. That's him. He's a good man. He fears God. He prays. He gives to others. He's, a, he's good. But God doesn't look at him and say, Cornelius, he's just fine as he is. I'm just going to leave him be. He doesn't need anything else. No, this is actually the story of God here in Acts chapter 10. God pursuing Cornelius, making sure that Cornelius hears about Jesus so he, he and his family can be saved. And what this shows us is that there's no one who is exempt from needing Jesus. And we're going to talk about why that is as we go on here in just a minute. Please read with me from verse 3 as we continue our story. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. He says in verse 5, And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. So the ninth hour is 3 p.m., And it is a traditional time of prayer in Israel. And so Cornelius is praying. It tells us that actually later in the chapter, concretely. He was praying at this hour of prayer. And as he's praying, he has this vision in which he sees an angel who's speaking to him and tells him that God has heard his prayers and that God has seen his heart of kindness towards others. And God wants to tell him something. So he needs to send for a man named Peter who's down at Joppa. We read that in verse 6. We read this. It says, he, that's Peter, is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea, and then in the New King James version it says this, he will tell you what you must do. So here's Cornelius. He's a good man, but he needs Jesus because being a good person, being even a spiritual person or a religious person is not enough to get anybody into heaven. And God loves Cornelius so much that he's praying. You know, as Cornelius is praying, God says, you know what, I love you so much. I am gonna send somebody to you to tell you about Jesus. Now think about this. If God was already speaking to Cornelius in this vision, well, why not just why tell him to send for Peter anyway? I mean, he's already talking to him, right? God's already got his attention. Why not just have the angel tell him about Jesus? Why bother with this whole extra step of going to get Peter? Why not just save Peter a trip, save these other guys a trip, save us all some time, and the angel can get it done and it will probably do a great job. Well, here's why. Because the way that God has chosen for the gospel to spread, for people to hear the gospel, for it to go out into the world is through living, breathing people like you and me. And maybe, let me tell you this, maybe you are the person who God has called to share the gospel with somebody else who needs to hear it. There's somebody out there and God loves them so much that he's sending you to be the person to tell them about Jesus. I would encourage you to be ready for that and be open to it because God might want to use you in that way. You know, back in the early 2000s, my wife Rosemary and I, we worked in a refugee camp in Hungary for for several years. And right now, you probably follow in the news, uh, the refugee crisis in Europe is all over the news. Just yesterday was like the peak of how bad it's ever been. 4,000 people crossed into Hungary, and they say right now, as we're speaking, 500 people an hour are crossing into Austria. So there's this huge refugee crisis going on, right? But this, this whole thing with refugees coming into Europe from the Middle East, it's nothing new. It's been going on for decades. It's just that the scale of it has dramatically increased over the last couple months. Well, so we worked with refugees, similar to what's going on now, just on a smaller scale at the time. And and one of the refugees we knew very well was a man named Fariborz. And Fariborz was from uh, Tehran, Iran. And he had converted to Christianity in Iran, and as a result, he had been threatened and he had been harassed because of his Christianity. And so he decided to try to come to Europe so that he and his family could be free and live as Christians. But it was really what, was, what I wanted to share with you was the way that Fariborz came to Jesus was remarkable. Here's what happened. He started having this recurring dream. He would go to bed at night, and he would have these dreams. And in these dreams, he would see this man nailed to a cross, covered in blood. And, and he knew enough about Christianity to know that that's obviously Jesus, and so Jesus, in this dream, which would happen to him over and over, would would look at him and say, "Go and talk to your neighbor." So he had this neighbor who lived on the same street as him, and so he goes and talks to this neighbor and says, "Hey, so I've been having this dream, and uh, and." It's weird. And so he tells him about the dream. What well, turns out this neighbor of his is a ethnic Armenian. So ethnic Armenians live in Iran but traditionally they're Christian. So this Armenian Christian neighbor of his, he tells him, "Well, here, that dream you're having, here's what it is. God is speaking to you and he's telling you to put your faith in Jesus and and put your faith in what Jesus did for you on the cross. So this neighbor shares the gospel with him and then begins teaching him about Jesus and gives him a Bible and prays with him and and that's how the whole thing began. And I love that story because just like with Cornelius, it shows us that no one is beyond God's reach. Even if you live in Iran where you can't hear about Jesus openly and, and have no opportunity to hear the gospel, God will reveal himself to people even through dreams and visions and yet the way that God has chosen for the gospel to be shared and for discipleship and training in faith and in God's ways the ways that he has chosen for that to take place is through flawed flesh and blood human beings just like you and me. And what a privilege that is, by the way, that we get to be part of God's work in somebody else's life. Whether it's through teaching kids on Sunday morning in children's ministry and telling them about Jesus, or whether it's talking to friends and neighbors about the things of God. What an incredible thing it is that we would be given a role in God's work of transforming people's lives and bringing about redemption. Let's continue reading from verse 7. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So I love the heart of Cornelius, by the way. He says, he knows what God wants him to do, and then he just does it. And it seems so simple, doesn't it? I mean, okay, this is what God wants me to do, so I do it. It seems so simple, but the, how many times does it happen that you or I, we know what God wants us to do, but we drag our feet, or we make an excuse, or we, you know, distract ourselves with other things. But I love this simplicity of faith in action, the essence of a heart that is submitted to God as Lord, that Cornelius knows what God wants him to do, and so he does. it and let me tell you this just like everything else this points us to the gospel doesn't it because here's the deal even though you and I we have often known what God would want us to do we haven't always done it but yet there is one there is one who did what the father told him to do even though it was impossibly hard it was Jesus he obeyed the father even unto death so that those who have disobeyed God us who have disobeyed God might have life and through him we can be made new in our character even in our affections our desires that's one of the things that happens when God comes into your life and begins to work in you your desires your affections change and you're changed from the inside out to the point where you become a person who wants to obey God it brings you joy you desire to do it because you realize his great love for you and therefore you can trust that well whatever he instructs me to do I want to do it because I know that he's saying that to me from a heart of love and wants So here's Cornelius. He sends these men on their way to find Peter, who's in Joppa at this man's house, and now the scene is going to shift to look at Peter in Joppa, and it brings us to our second section, which I call Pigs in a Blanket. Verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and as he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were still preparing it, he fell into a trance. So here's Peter in Joppa. He has no idea that Cornelius and his men are on their way to find him, and so according to custom, sixth hour, which is noon, Peter goes up on the rooftop to pray, and in that area around the Mediterranean, it's common even to this day for people to have flat roofs because they don't get a lot of rain and so they use their roof as a patio, they'll have some kind of awning up on their roof and they'll go up there and they'll sit and they'll, you know, hang out. So Peter goes up on his patio, on his rooftop to pray, it's lunchtime and he's hungry and I love that because it's so human, right? He's hungry, he wants to pray but he gets distracted and how many times that happened to you, right? You decide to go do something, read your Bible pray and then, oh well I'm hungry or my phone rings or I just remembered the hundred things that I've been meaning to do and I keep forgetting to do. So Peter's distracted. He's hungry. And I love this because God is going to use this distraction in Peter's mind, his hunger, in order to teach him something and help him understand the gospel in a new way. Verse 11. And Peter saw the heavens opening up And something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven." So here's Peter, he's hungry, it's hot, and he has this kind of trance-like state in which he sees this vision, something like a sheet descending with all kinds of animals on it. And what that means is that there were different kinds of animals. Some of the animals were kosher, according to Jewish law, and some were not kosher. And what that means is that the law of Moses had outlined which animals were clean, Kosher and which animals were unclean and could not be eaten. And, and among the animals that were not kosher, that were unclean, this would be pork, lobster, certain kinds of birds, etc. So Peter, he's a faithful Jew. He's a man who wants to follow God, he wants to please God. And following these dietary laws for him was a part of living in a way that pleased God. Now, think about this. Up until this point in his life, Peter has never eaten a piece of bacon. I know it's, it's hard to imagine. He probably had to eat that turkey bacon, which in my opinion should not even be called bacon. I mean, what is that? A, a lobster tail had never crossed his lips. Pork chops? Don't even think about it. But now here is this sheet floating down from heaven, pigs in a blanket. And, and Peter hears a voice and he says, the voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Go ahead, Peter. Have some bacon. Eat a pork chop. Try the lobster. It's delicious, Right? And I'm sure at first, Peter, he thought this was a test, didn't he? He says, oh, I know what this is. God's testing me. God's testing my resolve. He's going to see if I'm going to fold under pressure, if I'm going to give in and and do this thing because I'm hungry, but I know what the right answer is. And so Peter says, no way, Lord, not going to do it. I won't do it. I've never eaten anything unclean, and I'm not going to start now. No bacon, no lobster, not going to do it. But now, just stop here for a second. I want to pause on this. Think for a second about just how easily this phrase rolls off of Peter's lips. No way, Lord. Not so. Not going to happen, Lord. I mean, that's an interesting pairing of words, isn't it? No and Lord. It's kind of a a oxymoron in a way. These are it's a contradiction of terms. Those two words don't really fit together, do they? I mean, because you can say no way bro or no way buddy or, or no way dude, but you can't say no way Lord. It's a contradiction of terms. The, the words don't go together because if he's your Lord, well, that means that you do what he says. He's the boss. And if he's your Lord, it means that you say yes to him. And at the point when you begin to say no to your Lord, at that point, he actually ceases to be the Lord of your life, right? It's striking how easily these words just seem to flow right off of Peter's lips. You know, no Lord. In fact, if you read the Gospels, what you find is that this was actually a bad habit that Peter had. He had a very bad habit of telling Jesus no. Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. Peter says, no way, no way, not going to happen. I'm not going to let that happen. Jesus says, I'm going to wash your feet. Peter says, no, right? He, he just found it way too easy to say no to Jesus, And you can't help but love Peter in a way because we can all relate to Peter. How many of you have done the same thing at at certain times in your life? You've said, no way, Lord, you know, even though you know what God wanted you to do. But I love the fact how gracious God was with Peter, how God never cast Peter aside. He just instructed him and helped him along. And God used Peter in spite of his shortcomings, and he will do the same with us. To be a Christian is to declare that Jesus is Lord, and if Jesus is your Lord, then the only legitimate response that you can give to him is to say, yes, Lord, when he speaks to you. I think that all of us can afford to search our hearts and ask this question. Is there any area of my life where I have been saying, no, Lord, and I need to change that to yes, Lord? So God responds in verse 15, and we read there, he says this. Peter says, no way, Lord, I'm not going to do it. And God tells him, look, Peter, what I have made clean, do not call unclean. Do not call common. Now, in the Old Testament thinking, you had kind of two categories that things were placed in. You had holy things, and you had common things. There were things that were holy, and there were things that were common. And the holy could be made common if it came in contact with something that was common. So if you were a holy person and you came in contact with something that was common or unclean, that unclean thing would make you unclean. It would make you common. And then you'd have to go through some kind of ritual cleansing in order to become holy again. When something's made holy, that's what we call consecration. And when something's made common, that's what we call desecration. Things that were common or unclean were things like dead bodies, blood, certain kinds of animals, etc. And in Jewish thinking of that day, they took it even one step further. And what they said is, well, since the Gentiles... The non-Jewish people are not set apart to God. They're not a holy people like we are. Well, then they are in the category of common or unclean. Therefore, contact with them must be avoided at all costs, lest contact with them make us holy people become unclean. So they wouldn't have anything to do with Gentiles. They wouldn't enter their homes. They wouldn't let Gentiles enter their homes. They, They were afraid of even brushing against them as they walked down the street but peter's saying or god is saying to peter this and it's very profound he's saying peter i'm doing a work i am doing a work of making common things holy of making unclean things pure the interesting thing about god in all of this and all this talk about common things and holy things and uh, is this that god is holy in his very nature and he's so ultimately holy, that even if God comes in contact with something that is common, either that thing will be destroyed or that common thing will be made holy and not the other way around. Whereas with every other thing, if it comes in contact with something common, it becomes common. With God, if something common comes in contact with him, that thing becomes holy or it's destroyed. So at this point, Peter thinks that this is just about food, right? That, that what God is showing him is just about food. But in a second, we're going to see down in verse 28, if you peek a little bit later, you're going to see Peter realizes this isn't about food. Peter's picking up now what God is putting down, that this isn't about food, this is about something much more. That if God can take him, Peter, who has been common, and God can make him clean, then why couldn't God do that with anybody else? You see, anybody who is unclean, for whatever reason, God is in the business of making unclean things clean, of making unholy things holy, of making impure things pure. And if he could do that with somebody like Peter, well then why shouldn't he be able to do that with all people? You see, the message that God wants Peter to understand is this, that anybody can come to Jesus and be made clean. Anybody. Did you know that that was a radical idea? In the ancient world, it was totally foreign to these people, that idea. And here's why. Uh, you know, we hear that and we say, yeah, okay, no problem, I get it, no big deal. But for people in the ancient world, this was an absolutely radical idea. Because people in that time, the thinking generally went like this, that each nation has its own gods and deities, and that's just how it is, right? There's gods, the Romans have Roman gods, the Assyrian gods are for the Assyrians, the Egyptian gods are for the Egyptians, and the Jewish god is for the Jews. Everybody had their localized national gods, and that's just how it was. But now Christianity comes along, and Christianity says, no, that's not how it is. In fact, here's how it is. There is one God over all the earth, and everybody will be saved by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. It's one God for all nations one God for the Jews and one God for the Gentiles, one God for the Romans and for the Egyptians, one God for the rich and for the poor, for men and women, for educated and uneducated, one God over all the world. He is the one true God, and everyone can and must come to this God in order to be cleansed. That was a radical idea in Peter's day. And it was so radical that we see Peter, he had a hard time wrapping his head around this at first. That's why God has to repeat it three times, right? He says, don't call common what I have made clean. Do you get, you get what I'm saying, Peter? Are you picking up what I'm putting down? And Peter's like, I don't know. What, what are you saying? And he's like, okay, roll it again. We're just going to keep doing this until Peter gets it. And, and it was just so much in conflict with the common thinking of that day. that Peter was like, wait a second. Is he saying that God will... Take anybody like Jesus can cleanse anybody? No, no, that can't be it. I mean, that doesn't really fit, right? I don't, I don't get it. So it just keeps coming for the third time. And finally, after the third time, Peter starts to understand what's going on. You see, the message of the gospel is this, that you and me, we are those pigs in a blanket. That's you, that's me, that's the gospel. We are the pigs in a blanket. We are by nature unclean. And because of that uncleanness, we're separated from God who is by nature holy. And we have this fundamental problem. It goes down deeper than our behavior. It goes down deeper than just how we act or what we do or if we're nice to other people or not. We are by nature unclean. You see, when we talk about good people like Cornelius or or people who we know who generally are just nice people, why isn't it enough? For them to just be good. Well, why do they need Jesus in order to be saved? And here's the reason. Because all of us by nature are unclean. Because we've been touched by in some way impurity and uncleanness. And we've been affected by it. We have become impure. And just like those unclean animals. Now think about this you've got a group of pigs, right? And I'm sure that, or let's say, you've got a group of lobsters. It's nicer to compare us to lobsters than pigs. And you've got some in there that are nice, and they're friendly, and they make great pets, right? They're good with kids, they're good-tempered, they're just all-around nice pigs, or nice lobsters. And then you've got others amongst that group who are just kind of you know, rotten, they're nasty, they bite, and they're mean. But all of them, whether they're nice or nasty, in their behavior, in their nature, they are unclean. And see, that's the deal with us, too, that we are the pigs in the blanket. The message of the gospel is that God has come to us and he has done a work of making us clean through Jesus and his sacrifice for us. And if you come to him, anyone who comes to him, Jesus will make you kosher, right? He will, he will do a transforming work in your life. He will cleanse you of impurities. He will make you clean and holy so you can stand before him, the holy God. Now, the third section here is this final section, which is breaking tradition to follow Jesus. Let's read from verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and they called out asking whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, there are men looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. At first Peter wasn't sure what God was trying to tell him through this vision, but as this knock comes on the door and here are these these Roman people standing in front of him, it all clicks. Peter gets it. If God could cleanse a common guy like me, Peter says, if God could cleanse a common guy like me through Jesus, then there's no reason why God couldn't do the same for these guys too. It's very clear that Peter understood what God was saying because he invites these men in to his home to be his guests. Now The basic thinking, as I said, of the Jewish people was that they were holy and the Gentiles were common. And so they thought that contact with the Gentiles would make them Unclean. So they would never have a Gentile person into their home. If a Gentile person knocked on the door, they'd go outside to talk to them. If a Gentile person needed a place to stay, you wouldn't have them stay at your house. You'd give them directions to Motel 6. They, they would never eat with them. They would never lodge them. But Peter not only invites them in, we see that he has them as his guests, which implies Feeding them, it implies lodging them. And this is huge. This is breaking every custom of the Jewish people. It's going against all the traditions of how Jews were expected to behave towards Gentiles. But see, here's the thing Peter has come to a greater understanding of the gospel. It's like the light came on in his head. It's like all the puzzle pieces finally fit together, and he's finally seeing this thing that's been right in front of him the whole time, and somehow he never really got it. It didn't click, and now it is. After years of knowing Jesus personally, years of reading the Bible, years of even being an apostle and a pastor, it's like, wait a second, this is the gospel. How did I not see this before? How did this not click before? And you can imagine Peter thinking back to things that Jesus had said and thinking back to passages that he had read from the Old Testament that teach this exact thing and feeling like, oh my gosh, this is the gospel. This is what Jesus was saying all along. This is what the whole Bible is all about. It's not one God for the Jews and another for the Romans, but one God, creator of heaven and earth, who's over all, to whom all people and all nations can come and be cleansed and redeemed. Peter was going against all the traditions of the Jews, but he was not going against God's word. In fact, he was by doing this, he was being faithful to God's word by going against the traditions of his people. This is what the Old Testament said, that that God intends to bring salvation and redemption to all of the earth through the Messiah. And God's people were not to become like God the Gentiles, but they were to be a light to the Gentiles. So they were to be a missionary people who would help others to come to know God from all nations. Ten years prior to this event that we read about here, Jesus told his disciples, including Peter, to go out into all the world and make disciples of all nations. But the disciples kind of balked at that, didn't they? They wondered, does Jesus, surely he can't really, really mean that. I mean, this must be some kind of hyperbole or, you know, exaggeration to make a point. I mean, not all nations. I mean, thus far they have, they've gone and they've taken the gospel to several places. Samaria, Judea, the Jews of Ethiopia, the Jews of Damascus. But they surely must have wondered, surely Jesus couldn't mean all all the world. I mean, probably he meant all of the Jewish world, right? Because, because if he meant all the world, all nations, well, I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of Gentiles out there and surely we shouldn't go to them because they're unclean. They're, they're ungodly. They're impure. They're unholy. And now Peter's having a, a realization. The light's coming on. He's saying this, wait a second. I, I've been unholy, haven't I? I've been unclean. I've been ungodly. I've been impure. And God welcomed me in, and God cleansed me. And there's no reason why God can't do that for somebody else. That's the gospel, that anyone can come to Jesus and be saved and cleansed. And Peter says, how did I not get this before? The reason was because there was just this entrenched prejudice in their culture from the Jews against the Gentiles. And this prejudice was so ingrained in their thinking that they never stopped to question whether it was right or wrong. They never stopped to question whether it was biblical or unbiblical. They just took it for granted. And so here's Peter, and it's only when his thinking, his common thinking, his ingrained thinking is now challenged by the gospel that his thinking begins to change, And let me tell you what, that's what we all need. We all need for our thinking to be challenged, for our thinking to be weighed against the gospel. You know, there have been a couple times in my own life where I've had similar feelings to what Peter must have felt at this moment. I can remember a few distinct occasions when after having been a believer for for years, the lights finally came on, all the puzzle pieces fit together and it was like I understood the gospel really for the first time almost. I mean, it was like, how did I not see this? I mean, I believe in Jesus and all this, but now the gospel's making sense. Oh, one of these times was when I came to understand what grace is. Another time was when I came to a fuller understanding of the gospel. The gospel isn't just the ABCs of Christianity, it's not just the basics, it's the A to Z. It's the whole thing. And I remember the feeling both times of thinking, how did I not get this until now? It's so plain, it's right there. I've been a Christian for so many years, but now it's like I really understand the gospel for the first time. It was like being born again, again. I wonder if you've ever felt that way, that you've been going to church for years, but then one day, it finally clicks, and then you finally really understand the gospel for real, and it's almost like it's the first time ever. If you've ever felt that way before, don't be embarrassed. You're in good company. I'm sure that's how Peter felt when he came to this amazing realization, that this is the gospel, that anybody can come to Jesus and be cleansed and be right with God, no matter who they are or what's in their past. You see, who is it who needs the gospel? Who needs to hear the gospel? The answer is all of us. Good people like Cornelius, they need the gospel. Religious people like Peter, they need the gospel. We need the gospel to challenge our thinking, to to shape our minds and our hearts. The gospel is for everyone. There's no one who doesn't need it. Now, all of this took place in Joppa. I'll finish by saying this. Joppa. Does that place sound familiar to any of you, that name Joppa? Joppa. Joppa is modern-day Tel Aviv, by the way. If you're ever wondering, you know, why isn't Tel Aviv in the Bible, that's because it is. It's called Joppa. But Joppa's famous for another reason. Centuries before this, there was another man who also came to Joppa. He came to Joppa, and he received a message from God. God was calling him to go to the Gentiles. Do you know who that man was? His name was Jonah. Jonah. And Jonah came to Joppa. And Jonah had been given a message for the Gentiles. You know what the message was? It was, a, it was a severe message, but it was a message of hope. You see, the message was this. It was a solemn warning. You have sinned against the God of heaven. But there was a promise involved as well that that is the whole gospel, right? There's this promise that if you would turn to God, if you'll repent of your sins, if God will receive you and he'll forgive you and he'll show you mercy and grace. And do you remember what Jonah did? He came to Joppa and he said, no way, Lord, not going to happen, not going to do it. No way am I going to tell those people that God loves them and that they can be cleansed because they're Gentiles, they're unclean, they're ungodly, they're unholy. And Jonah said, no way, Lord. And he came to Joppa and he boarded a ship set for Tarsus, which is in Spain, the exact opposite direction of where God was sending him. And now in Joppa, Jonah says, no way, Lord. He refuses to take the good news of God's grace to the Gentiles. And now here, centuries later, again in Joppa, God speaks to a man and says, I want you to take the good news of my grace to the Gentiles. And Peter says, yes, Lord, I'll do it. He says, yes, I understand that I was unclean that I have been ungodly, that I have been unholy at times and you have shown grace to me. You showed me mercy and you showed me love. You sent Jesus for me to cleanse me and to save me and yes, I would love to share that message with those people. Jonah refused to share God's heart for other people but Peter He was willing to take the gospel and the word of God and let it shape his thinking and affect his actions. And as a result, he shared God's heart of love for other people, even for people he had formerly held prejudice against. And here's the great message of this section. The gospel is for everybody. Everybody needs the gospel. Good people, bad people, messed up people, people who've got it all together, religious people, non-religious people, every nation. Like Cornelius, we need to hear the gospel so we can believe and be saved and be cleansed. And like Peter, we need to continually hear the gospel so that our thinking, our attitudes, our hearts can be changed and shaped by it so that we can not only receive God's heart of love for us, but so that we can be agents, vessels through whom God extends that love to other people. Amen? Would you please stand with me and pray? Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for this great gospel of your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you save us, that you redeem us, that you make us clean. Lord, thank you that you have seen our greatest need and you have solved that need with your greatest deed, which is Jesus on the cross. Thank you, Lord, that even though we are more sinful than we even realize, we are more loved by you than we could ever dare dream possible. We thank you for this great gospel, and we ask that just as it did with Peter, that it would shape our thinking, that it would drive our actions, that it would make us people who love and pursue you and who love and pursue doing your work in the world. So Lord, we pray that you do that work in our hearts today and as we go from this place, in Jesus' name, amen.